We mentioned as we close out the last uh, segment that the natural face of a cherub is the face of an ox. And so that would make me suspect that in the temple and in the tabernacle, you had the single, the, the cherub with a single face and two wings, and that face was probably the face of an ox. Now, I'm not sure how, um, I'm not sure how art, any of the art I've ever seen done that, that goes back any distance, they don't usually do that. They don't have the face like an ox on a, on a cherub. So I'm not sure that we can make a case for that other than what we see in Scripture. That's their natural face. So uh, I would guess that's very probable what it is. So now, if you look over, and we're almost done with this section, we're going to go on to the created beings, and this will get to be a little more interesting and a little less speculative, because we just can't tell you very much about cherubim and seraphim, because there's just nothing revealed beyond what we're reading. But if you look at Ezekiel chapter 41, uh, anybody that uh, wants to see the Millennial Temple, I believe I posted it on, on, on the church website, under documents, if you go in there, there is a graphic that I put on there that I ran across. It is amazing. And it's a picture of the temple, the millennial temple, that Ezekiel describes in chapters 40 through 45. And if you've read through that, I've read through that countless times, and I cannot get a mental picture of it. I get lost. But somebody took the time and spent, I don't know, it must have been a lot of time, but if you go to the church website, it, uh, there should be, there's a document on there. It's, it's, a, it's, got a picture. it's got pictures. It shows you, and it has scripture references and everything that shows you what the Millennial Temple will look like. It does not look anything like Herod's Temple or the original Temple. It's going to be entirely different. And so if you want to see it, it's uh, Ezekiel's Millennial Temple on our church website and the documents. If you go under my name, Don Hewitt, I have a file with my, all my stuff in it. You'll find Ezekiel's Millennial Temple, and you can see it. And it's, it's really, if you want to know, it is absolutely amazing. So in the 41st chapter, however, in the Millennial Temple, now this is going to be the Millennial Temple. It's going to be different. There's going to be a lot of things different in the Millennium. A lot of things different about the Temple. A lot of things different about the priesthood. Uh, God's very versatile. God does not have to do everything the same way. And people have a problem with, with seeing that God and His program has designed changes to come along. The very fact that the churches here shows a big change because that was completely different from a people living by the law, not living by grace, but living by law, to all of a sudden the people living by grace. Complete change, and now he's going to go back in the future. God's program goes back to these same people living by law again. So when you get to the temple, it's going to be different. But let's see, going back to Ezekiel chapter 41, Let's see, beginning at verse 16, the doorposts and the narrow windows and the galleries round about on their three, three stories were over against the door, sealed with wood round about, and, and, and from the ground up to the windows, and the win, from the ground up to the windows, and, door, and the windows were covered to, the, to, the, to that above the door, even unto the inner house, when without, by all the wall round about were Within and without were by measure. Now, if you can follow all of that, this is where it gets confusing. This is why, get that diagram and look at it. But so you'll notice it says, verse 18, And it was made with cherubim and palm trees. And a palm tree was between a cherub and a cherub, and every cherub had two faces. So that the face of a man was toward the palm tree on one side, and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side made it to the ground above. So this is going to be the monotemple. temple. So are there actually cherubim running around with, well, 
apparently there are because this is they're going to be pictured here. So you have a cherubim with one wing with with uh, wings. With I have one wing and two faces. Does it say that in there? That's that's a, that must be a typo on my part. Let's see, face of man. Yeah. Each each cherub had two faces. Now I had about one wing, so it has has one. So the, let's see, we have the two faces, and it doesn't say how many wings. So we suggest there were two. Okay, there we go. So I have a cherub with, and then point number one should be a cherub with two wings and two faces. I don't know why I did that because I just put above that we suggest two, and I can't imagine them having. So point uh, on point D with one one with the uh, half round. It should be. Cherub with two wings and two faces. And that's it. Let's see, wait a minute, wait a minute. How do I do that? I got... All right, so what's a cherubim? A cherubim, a cherubim is the plural. It's the plural. Okay. It's three or more. Cherub is just singular. means one. Are these statues? Well, these are carvings. Those, those are carvings in there. So I suggest that those are actually... So that I've got a duplication in there. So one and three are the same thing. So you can scratch off one, I guess that would be. So you have cherubim with two wings and four faces and two wings and two faces. Yeah, that's kind of... So you've got... And so are there ranks there? I, I don't know. But so cross off number one. I don't know why I did that. I, uh, under point D, the three distinct types of cherubim. It's only really two. And the first one, I don't know why I did that. I thought I proofread better than that. But... Mm. Under, under point D, three distinct type of cherubim on page four. Yes. The first one under point D, the three distinct types, it has cherub with one wing and two faces. Just cross that off because that's not right. That doesn't even need to be there. We know that what he could see was he had two wings and four faces. We saw that and two wings and two faces. And so, while it's not revealed in Scripture, most Bible teachers, and I, I would agree with this, and I, I, I can't say beyond that, most believe that the, that the cherub, Satan, was a one-face, two-winged cherub. Now, it's not really ever stated, but that's just an assumption that most people make. Now, I don't know that it would change anything about Satan at all if he had more than one face and more than two wings. I don't know that it would change anything, but... Uh, that's what is supposed. Now, we do know that of, the, of all the cherubim, we can say that he was the greatest of all created beings. Now, we go back to Ezekiel 28, and uh, if you're still in Ezekiel, let's just back a few pages. There's no question that this is the greatest created being, because that's exactly what God, God's estimate of this individual was. He was by far the greatest created being. He says in verse 12 of Ezekiel 28, Son of man, take up... A lamentation upon the king of Tyrus. Now, it says king of Tyrus, don't be deceived. It talks about the prince of Tyrus in verse 1, who was probably what we would call the king. And this is going to be the power behind the throne. It says, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, you seal up the sum. You seal up the sum. You make up the sum, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. What it's telling is this, you are the top line. The Hebrew indicates very clearly that it's like he was the blueprint that you could measure others by. Are they perfect? Well, what do you know what perfect looks like? Well, here, compare him to this one here, Satan. Compare him to Lucifer. There's your perfection. He was absolutely the perfect created being. And it says, you have been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The, the sardis, the, ta- the 
topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, and the workmanship of your tabrets and of your pipes was prepared in you in the day you were created. You are the anointed cherub that overshadows. I translate that overshadows. But you see, this is not talking about a human king. If you look at all those references we have on page one to cherubim, you will not find one time that a, a human being is ever called a cherub. Never. This, is the, this was a cherub that was perfect in all of his ways, who was in a place called Eden. He was in a garden called Eden. Ah, but now remember, you could write over top of Ezekiel 28, 13, see Genesis 2, 8. Because later, after the earth is flooded out in Genesis 1, 2, God is going to plant a garden eastward in a place that already is known as Eden. So we know Satan was there first, but this is not a vegetable garden. When Satan was there, it's, it's a mineral garden. It's got, it's got all these, these minerals. And it says, you are the anointed cherub that covereth, overshadows. He stood above it. He stood out above all of that. And his light and his glory reflected off of that. That's covereth. He was not protecting anything. It's covereth. He covered. He overshadowed. This is the same we saw back in, as you saw the wings in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, where the wings overshadowed, they covered over top of the mercy seat. They overshadowed it so you could see. You could drop the blood down to see it. So he overshadowed. He stood above all of these things, and he stood above in rank because he was in the garden of God. He was in the government of God, in the mountain of God. He's thrown out of it, mountain being the kingdom. This is the one that was in charge. This goes back to a time when there weren't humans. And we always like to think that the creation of the earth was all about us. Not originally. Not originally. Not originally. Genesis 1-1, the earth was created. But Genesis 1-2, something happened. And the earth was in a mess. And that was because of what happened here. Because Satan was there. And we know that, 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 that man is there later because the garden is planted later. And it says the garden is planted in a place already known as Eden. Now we mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. When God planted that garden eastward in Eden, he picked the very place on the whole planet where Satan had had his throne and had been the ruler on this planet. What do you think that did to Satan? What? That'd be like taking the president's office to General Motors or Boeing and clearing them out and putting a broom closet in there. Because man is so much inferior to him. Man is below the angels. And Satan is above all the angels. He's the greatest. And so you take the greatest created being and you take his place. After it's been flooded, you bring it back up. You change it. And you put this puny little being there. And now he becomes the center of God's program. Whereas you were the one that was the center of it. As the chief. You can understand now why Satan's on a course of revenge. Eastward in Eden, that's the key. It'll tell you, eastward, the place is already known as Eden. And if Satan was there and he was overshadowing, he was this magnificent being, then it tells you, as you go down through here, we keep on reading, you were in the holy mountain, you walked up, you were in the holy mountain of God. You've walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. He was the one that was the big shot. He walked around. He was the big dog. He overshadowed, stood above all that. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until Iniquity, or if you please, perversities. Something twisted was found in you. What was it? By the multitude of your merchandise, you filled the midst of thee with violence, and you have sinned. 
Therefore I will cast the profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy the ill-covering cherub out of the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You've corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast you to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. What a fate. He was cast out of the mountain of God. Now remember something else that we mentioned before. This is a public disgrace because he was the place, he was the one in the place where everybody came to report. He was the chief executive in charge of everything. All of a sudden, he's not there anymore. And every spirit being in the universe knew what happened to him. Now, this is a being of pride. What do you think public disgrace does to somebody with a pride like this? Do you imagine what that could do to him? The rage and the hatred he has? I understand his rage and hatred. I really understand it because he was publicly disgraced before every being in the universe at that time. They all knew it. He wasn't there. He has no place in the... He said, I've kicked you out of the, you're out of the mountain of God. He has no place in the government of God. Maybe that explains, if you look at Satan, one of the interesting things about Satan, they say, everybody says he wants to be like God. Uh, no, maybe in certain ways. But does he want to be like God? No. You know how you can see it the easiest? Look at all the things Satan has done. Tell me one constructive thing he's ever done for any human being. Because everything he's done has affected humans because they're in the center of God's program right now. What one constructive thing has Satan ever done for the human race? Can you find it? Is the world system really good for us? No, it's not. No, it's not. Dog eat dog. People go to work. You have to go back to work at the office when you could work from home. That doesn't sound like it's such a good thing. You know, Satan could change. You know, and all the inequity in the world, you know, when you talk about creating the wrongs of society, the church wants to get involved in that today. People, open up your eyes. Those people out there that want to do that, it's social gospel. Don't they realize who owns this world? Who could control it? Who said in, Isaiah, in, in Luke 4, he said, I can give the power, I can give it to whoever I want to. Could he spread the wealth around and solve some of the world's problems? Then why doesn't he do it? Because not one thing Satan has ever proposed to do or ever will propose from the moment he was thrown out and humiliated to the day he goes to the lake of fire, not one thing is ever constructive for anybody but him. It's basically, you can summarize it, and, and I'll challenge anybody on this, so I know some of my friends have disagreed with me in the past, but I say you can summarize Satan's strategy in one word. Revenge. I want revenge. You humiliated me. I want to wreck everything you touch. Look at it. Doesn't that make sense? God creates man. He gets him to fall into sin. Imagine the, imagine the pain, by the way. The man falls into sin and Satan says, Ha! All of a sudden, Satan finds out that God provides a plan of redemption for the man. But what does God provide to redeem Satan? Can you see the affront? You see how Satan has taken it? Can you understand his rage? You almost could feel sorry for him. Almost. (laughs) But I'm not going to be that crazy. But you can see. You can see the rage. Why would he have this rage? Why would he be driven with hatred all of this time? Because of what's happened to him. Every time he goes by angels, I'm sure some of them probably just kind of look at him and go, when he goes by. You want to know something? Oh, here's something else. I've mentioned this before, but I want you to go back to Isaiah. If you want to see how bad Satan is going to get of all of this, I want you to see something in Isaiah. 
When I saw this, I about, I about died laughing. I, I just I couldn't, I couldn't hardly believe that this was here. It was just, it's not funny, but to me it is. It's not funny, but you talk about irony and sarcasm. Now, we know in Isaiah 14, beginning at verse 12, it's talking about Lucifer, the son of the morning. Lucifer was shining one. He was the son of the dawning. He was the beginning of creation. He was the hallmark, the entrance into creation. The grand and glorious introduction was a perfect being. Ooh, what a way he came down. But you notice before that, it's going to say something that's going to lead right into that context. Look back being at verse 9. Hell from beneath, or if you please, Hebrew, Sheol from beneath, is moved for thee to meet thee at your coming. Okay, Sheol's moved to meet you at your coming. Who? It stirs up the dead? Ah, uh, no, no, no. The Hebrew word here is not the normal word for dead. It's the word refa, rephaim. It stirs up the rephaim for thee. Do you remember who the rephaim were? They were the sons of God, daughters of men. They were the children that came that were half human, half demonic in their origin. The rephaim. We've got lots of notes on it. You can go to uh, our church website and, and the sons of God. I have a series on the sons of God, daughters of men, and the file under my name. There's quite a bit of information in there. We may, we may share it if we get through this. I've, I threatened to bring it and share it in, in this particular climb. We may not have the time, though. But so these beings are there, and they're in a place where Satan is going to go. Now, Satan isn't going to the low, lowest shield where, where humans go. He's going to a place called the Abyss in the book of Revelation, or we'd call it Middle Sheol. It's a place below what was paradise, then there was Middle Sheol, where there was a great gulf fixed in Luke 16, it talks about it. Then there's the lowest Sheol, which David said he was saved from the lowest Sheol when he got saved. So that's where the unsaved go. But this is somebody, these are beings that are going to be in, they are going to be in the Abyss. They're waiting for him. And it says, It has raised him up, it has raised up from the thrones all the kings of the nations. Now, these Rephaim, in the past, there's a lot of historical evidence. There were huge kings. One of them is recorded in the Bible, Og the king of Bashan. Do you remember him? Bed frame was 13 feet long, 6 feet wide. California king, and then some, huh, guys? Phew. Why would you have a 13 foot bed? He probably got a 12 foot man laying on it. And he, was a, and he was identified as a Rephaim. It says, They shall speak and say unto thee, Are you become weak as we? Have you become like unto us? Your pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of your vials, and the worm is spread under thee, and the worms cover thee. What does that mean? Well, he's going to sit there, and Satan, for a thousand years, is going to be brought down to this place. And guess who's there? In the, in the book of Jude, we find out that there are angels that are incarcerated. And they're also their offspring are down here. And they're going to say, well, 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 haven't we seen you before? Come on down. Isn't this a nice place to be? How's your plan going, Satan? How are you doing? Looks like you're winning, aren't you? A thousand years, he's going to get this. Can you imagine why? Now do you understand why at the end when he's released, he's going to go out full of rage and he's going to strike out knowing he can't win. He's going to attack God. He's going to be destroyed at that point and taken to the lake of fire. Why is he going to come out in that rage? Because for a thousand years, he's going to be taunted by these beings that he encouraged. 
that he pushed into doing what they did. And he's going to care all that time. Talk about poetic justice. I don't feel sorry for him. I'd love to be able to listen in on some of that stuff and see what's going on. It would be, it would be fascinating. Well, but perfection, you'll notice we have in here, that he was the sum of perfection, and that was the reason Lucifer became Satan. His heart was lifted up. His, he became twisted in his mind. He became so twisted that he thought, if, you still have, if you're still in Isaiah chapter 14, there's, there's something here, uh, there's two things that are stated in the famous I wills that I wish were translated better in English because they're clear in Hebrew, but they're not, none of the translations I've read in this passage ever translate the Hebrew, the Hebrew verb correctly, and I don't know why. Even the Jewish publication society has an English version. They didn't translate these two verbs right. But when Satan said, and he said in his heart, back in verse 13 of Isaiah 14, if you're still there, I will ascend into the heaven. Now, what he literally said is, I am ascending into heaven. This is looking at Satan when he's right on earth and God's looking in his heart. This is what's happening. He says, I'm ascending into the heaven. I'll exalt my stars above the throne of God. I will also set an amount of congregation in the sides of the north. Amount of congregation, Job 1, where the angels meet before God's throne. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Well, that's what it says in Hebrew. I will make myself like the Most High. That's how arrogant, that's how conceited, that's how twisted he's become. He is going to make himself like the Most High. He's going to put his throne right up next to God's, and he's going to operate independent of God. He's going to do it. He's going to make himself there. But it says, I will exalt my throne. And that also should be translated a little differently. I will cause my throne to be exalted. I'll make it happen. It's a form of the Hebrew verb that emphasizes responsibility. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make my throne great. And then I'm going to make myself like the Most High. This is how this being thinks. This is why he's so dangerous. If he thinks he has this kind of ability, and he has such great ability, he's not somebody anybody should ever cross with. And I'm always amazed that there have been people who said, command Satan to do something. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I command you Satan. Not me. I don't want to go anywhere near this being. Not a bit. So, anyway, uh, having said all of that, uh, any questions about Satan before we leave, though? I know we got into some things that weren't in your notes, but these are things that uh, will probably be covered better in, in the class on Satanology and Demonology. But uh, there are things that are worth knowing and things that are important for us to recognize is that this being is, is really has quite a story behind him. And if we understand it, we can understand why he's so full of rage, why he's so destructive. Because of all the things that's happened to him, the affronts, the slaps in the face to his enormous pride. Now, they're his fault. He's the one that did what he did, but boy, he sure gotten slapped around for it. Well, in verse 10, where it says, they, they all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? This, I'm in the King James Version. Right. Um, New King James Version. Have you become like us? These are, these are back, this goes back to verse 9 where it's talking about the, the, the dead that are raised up, yes. who are kings, they're going to say this. They're speaking, they're saying this to Lucifer. The kings being... Uh, Rephaim. Because, yeah, for example, we have in the case of Og, the king of Bashan, who's identified as a Rephaim. Okay. And he was the one that was like probably 12 feet tall or better. And so they were kings. And there's a picture I have uh, saved 
that shows a graphic of a, of a king sitting on his throne, and the people with subjects before him come up to about here on him. So is he, are they, and are so, they, are they actually saying to him, I'll use this as a, as a, are you weak like we are? Well, if they're confined in, lost your glory. yeah, they're confined in, they're confined in the abyss, and at the middle of the tri- at, at tribulation, when the millennium yeah. starts, Satan is brought down and bound there. And that's when they're going to say it to him. This is going to happen. Okay. And this, I mean, you can imagine getting this for a thousand years, getting taunted, and you have to sit there and take it because he's going to be chained. It says he's going to be chained. Some kind of a holding device. He's not going to be able to go anywhere. He's stuck there, and he's going to be hearing this. And I dare say that these beings, they're here because of him. They followed his advice. So what are they going to do? They're going to, they're going to want to give everything back to him they can. They're going to want to harass him as much as they can. And you can't blame him. So, yeah, so when you put that in context, he's going to be sitting there taking this for a thousand years while he's bound, and he can't do anything, and he can't stop them. Uh, boy, talk about being taunted. I don't know how anybody could take that. Well, we go on from this point, and we're going to go into a major break now. The creation of spirit beings. Now, one thing we can say is that all... Spirit beings were created prior to the creation of the material universe. Now we can say that because if you go back to Job chapter 38, you can see it. We read that already, but let's go back and we're going to look at it from a different viewpoint. If, if somebody witnesses something, that means they had to be there before the event they witness. I mean, that's kind of obvious. But in Job chapter 38... When God is speaking, and we mentioned this before, and, and, and this, is quite a, this is quite an answer. If you read the 38th chapter and ask yourself, was God explaining anything to Job about his suffering? Because everybody says the book of Job is about man's suffering. Is God explaining anything about suffering here to him? No, he's not. He's explaining where Job's problem was, that Job wanted to justify himself instead of God. But anyway, so in the seventh verse, when God is asking him questions, he said, where were you? In verse six, he says, where, were you, where, where are the foundations thereof fast? And he's talking about the earth and who, and, who, and who laid the cornerstone thereof. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever done this on the internet, but you can actually go on and they have, they have found a way to record sounds of stars that stars make. And you can go on the internet, go on YouTube, and you can find sounds from the stars. And it's kind of weird static. But when the stars sang, apparently, my ears don't work like theirs do because it sounds like noise to me. But apparently, it was something pleasing to them because it says the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, the sons of God in the Old Testament, please remember that expression, the sons of God, if you check it out, that expression occurs five times in the Old Testament. It occurs once in Job here in the 38th chapter, twice in the first chapter and the second chapter, and then it occurs twice back in Genesis chapter 6. And all times, all four times, all five times, it refers to only one type of being. It's talking about spirit beings. The sons of God in the Old Testament, believers were never called sons of God, not until you get to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, they were believers, but they were never called sons of God. Because the only place you can find it if you check those references out, and you can see it's in Genesis 6, 2 and 4, I believe, Job 1, 6 and 2, 1, and then Job 38, 7. And that's the only places that term is that those exact words are used in Hebrew. And they are the same exact words all five times, with the exception of, 
and in verse 7 of Job 38, there's no definite article. It's the sons of God. It doesn't say these sons of God, but it's the same people, obviously. So the sons of God shouted for joy. So if they were, if they were there when the universe was created, then obviously they proceeded. Now you'll notice we have in here, in the New Testament epistles, Christians are called the sons of God. Now, let's go over Romans chapter 8 and look at it very quickly. Because uh, if, if we believe some people that they want to make Old Testament and New Testament salvation identical, then why, why are they not ever called sons of God in the Old Testament if they have the same salvation as we do? Wouldn't it make sense? But I don't read it in the Old Testament, but ah, here it is. In the book of Romans. Chapter 8, and for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And down, down again, I believe in verse 19, you have it again, it says, for the earnest expectation of, of the creature, now it should be the creation, I don't know why they translate it this way, but the word creature quite often in, in, in the book of uh, Romans is actually creation. I don't know why they call it a creature, because I don't think of the planet as being a creature or the universe as being a creature. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Well, who is that? Well, that's us. So you do see it here. And so you'll notice we have down here the exact Hebrew phrase, the sons of God, occurs five times in the Old Testament. And there's no question. And Job. Now, the other ones, I mean, you could possibly make a case in Job six or in Genesis six two and four, you might be able to make a case for something about humans, but when you have the same term used, if you look at Job chapter one, if you're still in the book of Job, you can see who it is. I mean, this is very clear. And and uh, those who want to make the sons of God something else, and they want to make it, uh, they want to make the sons of God the righteous line of Seth, the children of Seth. If you go through and check this, the, the terminology, children of Seth, you won't find a single reference in the Old Testament to the children of Seth or the sons of Seth. You'll find Seth mentioned a few times, but nothing about his children. So there's, there's nothing in the Old Testament about it. So how in the world could you make that up? Well, you'd have to make it up is about all. But you notice in, Je- in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. Now the word for present, we mentioned this, it's to station themselves. It's like a military... Arrangement. They had their. They had assigned positions, and they and apparently they says it says there was the day. Now there's a definite article in the Hebrew. There was the day when the sons of God came to to station themselves before the Lord. So th- this is a regular occurrence where they come to station themselves. They come in to get evidently instructions as to what they should be doing. But it says, and Satan also came among them. Yeah. See, they say that that's nothing. Sin can't enter into heaven. Well, what is this telling you right here? It used to, and as far as I know, until Revelation says in the middle of the tribulation, Satan is thrown out of heaven, he still does. So, you know, those who want to make God too holy to be in the presence of sin, uh, no, you've got a problem there. And then again, you have it in the second chapter, it says in verse 1. Now, again, there was the day when the sons of God came to station themselves, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among him to present himself before the Lord. Now, I like what it says in, in, in both passages. It says, And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down in it. 
There's where you should write 1 Peter 5.8. It says, Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. With Satan walking around on the earth, after all these thousands of years he's been around, and been over the earth countless times, what is he doing? Just walking around and just taking a, uh, a Sunday afternoon stroll? No, he's walking about. He's doing exactly what 1 Peter 5.8 says. He's seeking whom he may devour. And when he came to present himself before the Lord, guess what he's doing? Well, you can see what happened. He wound up tempting somebody. What do you think he came for? He apparently had somebody he wanted to tempt. So he came and he had to get permission. Even in the Old Testament, Satan couldn't just go out. Because you see, when God gives him permission with Job, he sets a limit. Initially, don't touch the man. Second time, don't take his life. But he still allows him. But Satan had to get permission. So Satan came. He's walking on the earth. He came among them. He wanted to get He wanted to get permission to tempt somebody. So Satan was there, and he had an evil. And and it's really, if you look at how God deals with him, and we mentioned this, if you haven't heard it, when Satan speaks to to, to God the first time, it's uh, he says something really. Uh, in verse 11 of the first chapter, you talk about some really nasty, biting sarcasm. It says in verse 11, But put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has, and he will, it says curse. That's the word that's translated almost every time, bless. Now, you, how would you say that? Touch all that, and he will bless you to your face. This is Satan speaking face to face to God on the throne. So, I dare say, if you want to know what this one is like, this is the only time that you see Satan in these two chapters, you see Satan talking face to face to God. And that makes us unique because if you want to know what it's like, here it is. And I realized that. I thought, wow, this is important. And it really is. The book of Job is really unique in some ways.